want to invite you, if you will, to take your copies of Scripture and uh, turn to Psalm 1. Uh, turn to Psalm 1. Uh, we don't often mention it, but I do want to mention today that uh, uh, for those maybe who are guests and uh, you're probably wondering, okay, when are they going to take the offering up or if you've come today prepared to give, uh, we just want to remind you that uh, it is not that we do not believe that uh, time of our giving to uh, the life and the ministry of the church is not important. We do. Uh, but the way we do that is we have a box back on the table back here in the back corner uh, with envelopes. And uh, we encourage you, if you've come prepared to give today, that you um, you certainly uh, are able to do that. You can just uh, put your offering in an envelope and put it in the box. Again, it's uh, we don't see that as less worshipful. Um, but... Uh, you will go weeks here at times, and we will not, you'll not hear anything about an offering. It's not that it's not important, uh, and it's not that the uh, financial needs of the church do not exist. They do, and our ministry uh, requires that, uh, but we just want to encourage you in that way. also want to say thank you this week. Uh, I had mentioned last week uh, about Lola, and you have been praying for her this week, and I want to say thank you for that. Uh, there have been there has been some reprieve uh, in her symptoms uh, through the course of the week, uh, though they still exist and they've kind of expanded to other uh, uh, to uh, her cheek and then to her left foot. Uh, she has also had some reprieve, and it's not been a constant thing. Uh, but if you will continue to pray for her as uh, Jennifer and Wes uh, continue to seek to try to find. Uh, uh, some medical attention and some help that maybe will help them know what's going on and know how best to, uh, to help her. Um, we have turned to Psalm 1 as we will give attention over the course of the next seven weeks to a uh, particular psalm. Uh, I read this week in preparation for today. Um, nine years ago, uh, Daniel James Brown released of what became uh, the New York Times bestseller, The Boys in the Boat. Uh, I didn't read it. I'm not sure if he read it. Uh, but uh, it is a story of the rowing team uh, that was from the University of Washington in Seattle uh, and their quest for the gold medal, guess when? Uh, in 1936, the 1936 Olympics. Uh, took place, uh, of all places, in Berlin. Um, Hitler was there, Nazis were there, all of that was taking place during those days. And all of these young men on the rowing team came from uh, families who were middle class. Uh, they were either farmers, uh, some of them were uh, sons of loggers, but uh, they all came from a working background. And um, their odds were very slim. But they had put together a rowing team, and uh, they worked really hard. Uh, their coach was Al uh, uh, Erbickson, and uh, he trained them in extreme conditions. Um, when it was 20 and 30 degrees and below and in the snow, if they had tipped the boat over, most likely they would have died of hypothermia. But he trained them, and they worked uh, incredibly hard. And uh, they raced, and uh, they won the eight-man rowing event. And there were actually nine of the men who trained. There were one alternate. Um, it was estimated that they, uh, through the course of their training, that they rowed uh, close to 4,400 miles in preparation for that race. Uh, and their coach had done an estimate on this, and I'll share this with you. It was estimated that each man pulled the oar uh, close to 500,000 times uh, in preparation for that race. And they won the gold medal in that event. Um, over the four years of training and competitions, they faced many hardships. Um, I was reminded of this, and what drew me to this is that we have just come out of First Peter and we have given attention to the hardships and the struggles that come in the course of life and in the face of persecution. But just think about that, training for the four years. 
They were faced with these hardships and many emotions, uh, not the least of which were the emotions associated with the final victory. And, uh, and as I've mentioned, we spent 16 weeks considering 1 Peter, and we repeatedly, in the course of our study of 1 Peter, pointed to 1 Peter 4.9, which we said seems to be, in the course of that letter, the summary of what Peter was communicating uh, to those original recipients and is communicating to us. And that is, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And we're coming out of 1 Peter with that very thought in mind, and it raises several questions. But the one question uh, that it caused me to continue to go back and look at is how can we do good in the face of hardship and persecution? How is that possible? How do we do good in the face of hardship and persecution? Uh, so coming out of 1 Peter, uh, it was our intent for seven weeks to turn to the Psalms to find the answer to that question. How do we do good in the face of hardship and persecution. Ultimately, this doing good rests in our looking to, and we've already pointed to that already this morning, looking to the Word of God, looking to, marveling at, and worshiping the Lord God, Yahweh. Uh, remember Peter's words, entrusting your souls to a faithful Creator. And that word entrusting seems like such a direct imperative, and it is, but I, I know that in many ways it's not just that simple. We can use the word entrusting, we can talk about faith, we can talk about trust, but what does that entail? What does that entail? It's an ongoing work. We know that entrusting our lives to someone, uh, to, someone to God, is a matter of faith. We trust, we place our faith in Him. As believers. So if you're a believer here today, then you have entrusted your soul to the Creator. You're trusting in Him. You place your faith in Him. You're looking to Him for your life. Hopefully that's true of you. Uh, if you're here today and you've not yet trusted Christ, then you're trusting in something else. Maybe you're trusting in yourself. You're trusting in uh, better days. I, whatever it may be, but you're trusting something. But we trust and we place our faith in God. And it seems simple to say, but it has to be carried out in the midst of all kinds of circumstances and all kinds of hardship, persecution, hardship, sickness, and even when we are having to deal with death. It's clearly an act that involves the greatest of affections and is influenced by great and deep emotions. Now, I don't want to separate those things, okay? I don't want to separate the love here from the text that we'll look at in just a moment. And I don't want to separate and us in some way or another feel like that that does not uh, come in the midst of emotions and feelings. If, if any of you have read the Psalms much, uh, you have recognized that the psalmist puts a spotlight on a full range of human emotions uh, and feelings. Why? I, I, I can think of at least two reasons. One is that we, by God's design, are emotional beings. Some may be more so than others. Some may be showing it in different ways, but we are emotional beings. God has made us that way. We feel. We really do. We feel things. The circumstances of our lives and our interactions and responses with these circumstances impact our emotions. We are feeling people. Now, admittedly, we don't always feel as we should, and we know that. In fact, I'm reminded that we cannot always rely on our feelings to guide us. In fact, if we are, catch ourselves always operating and acting on our feelings, then we will, uh, in retrospect, look back and realize that we have acted wrongly a lot of the times. Not always, but we have acted wrongly because we will act on our feelings, and our feelings are not always right. But what we need to do and what we will begin doing today over the course of the next seven weeks is giving consideration to this and filtering our feelings through the very things that we have already pointed to this morning, and that is the Word of God. 
Because while God has made us emotional beings, and while God recognizes that we have these feelings, he also gives us instruction as to how we should feel and how we should think, how we should act, and what we should uh, do. The psalmist uh, has the feelings in mind, responses to the circumstances in mind as he gives us our instruction. So as our minds are being conformed to the image of Christ, as our minds are being transformed, as our minds are being renewed by the work of the Holy Spirit, and that is true of those who are believers, the Spirit of God at work in us, transforming us, um, then we should give consideration to our emotions and our feelings. Uh, This is not unique with most of uh, those who... Uh, have written on the Psalms, but I want to run through just quickly, and you may want to jot these words down in just the text. You can go back and look at them, but just the gamut of emotions and feelings that are expressed uh, in the Psalms. Uh, Feeling of loneliness. Not sure if any of you have ever felt lonely, but Psalm uh, 25 and verse 16, I'm lonely and afflicted, the psalmist confesses. Uh, the feeling and emotion that is driven out of the context of love. He said, I love you, O Lord, my strength, in Psalm 18.1. The, the, the feeling and emotion that comes when we are in the presence of God and there's this great sense of awe. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him, talking about the Lord, Psalm 33.8. The sorrow and hardship that comes along with it. My life is spent with sorrow, Psalm 31.10. There is uh, the response to what goes on in the course of our lives in regret. How many of you have regretted doing something? I think all of us have. I'm sorry for my sin, the psalmist says in Psalm 38.18. What about what David says in Psalm 51 in, in in his contrition? He said, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise, Psalm 51, 17. What about discouragement? Anybody in here been discouraged this week? Discouraged and, and turmoil. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Psalm 42, 5. What about shame? Anybody in here ever felt, been ashamed of what you've done or felt shame because of what you have done? The psalmist writes, shame has covered my face, Psalm 44, 15. How about those times when we have exalted in the Lord? We did just a moment ago as we sang in our opening hymns, as we often do, looking to God to praise Him and to exalt in Him. In your salvation, how greatly He exalts, Psalm 21, 1. How about marveling? We mentioned that earlier. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous uh, in our eyes. Psalm 118, 23. I shared in a text with Adam and Booney, another church has been similarly blessed, and I just marvel at it. I was talking with my good friend Mark Powell uh, just yesterday, and uh, Mark and his church, they planted another church, and they were wanting to relocate Uh, just because of the change and the dynamics and the area that they're in turning to to kind of more of an industrial kind of place. And and folks who were living in the area are moving away because the area is becoming more industrialized. So they were going to move to Jackson, Georgia. They had located a place that they were going to rent. And uh, just this past week, uh, one of their senior members uh, just had on his mind, he said, I'm going to ride over to that area. And he rode over and uh, went to the Second Baptist Church of Jackson, Georgia, and uh, saw the pastor. And he said, my wife uh, used to be a member here. In fact, when we first started dating, he said, uh, uh, I attended here with my wife. And he began, struck up a conversation with the pastor. He said, you know what? He said, we're brothers in Christ, and our church is getting ready to relocate over here. There should be some way that we could work together. Uh, this was not driven by the pastor. It was driven by one of the senior members of the church. And he got struck up a conversation with the pastor, and the church has been uh, struggling for some time now, had gotten down to about 10 in attendance. 
And the pastor said, you know what? He said, we can work together. And through the course of this week, that pastor has said, we just want to sign the church over to you. We just want to give you the church, the building, and the facility. So within a stone's throw of the place that they were going to rent, Second Baptist Church Jackson, Georgia, is now going to just sign their facility over to South Point Fellowship uh, so that they have a place to worship and that the work of God will continue. I just marveled at that in the same way that I marveled at what Cornerstone uh, was willing to do for us here. Uh, point is, it's just we just marvel in the Lord. What about delight? Uh, we read in Psalm 1, and we'll read in just a moment in Psalm 1 and verse 2, his delight is in the law of the Lord. In other words, the one who's seeking after God really loves the law of the Lord. That's the reason we were pointing to the Word of God this morning, and we'll, we'll hear in just a minute again, in just a moment, look at it again. What about joy? You put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and their wine abound, the psalmist writes in Psalm 4-7. In gladness, I'll be glad and exult in you, Psalm 9-2. But we also experience fear, don't we? We experience fear. You ever been fearful of anything? Well, the psalmist was. He said, serve the Lord with fear. That was the initial fear that he had. He said, I serve the Lord in fear, Psalm 2-11. And all of us have been angry. We've all been angry. You may have even been angry before you got here this morning. Maybe something came up, and, which is not an uncommon thing when we're being challenged uh, uh, as we prepare to come and, and worship and, and to come here at least and put a smile on our face if for no other reason than to make everybody think that all is well with us. But the psalmist writes in Psalm 4.4, he said, Be angry and do not sin. And they just run through. There's peace and grief and desire, and hope, and brokenheartedness, and thankfulness, and zeal, and all of these things the psalmist deals with. Why do we mention these? Because it has been said that the psalms function as a kind of laboratory for the emotions, for the affections of our hearts. They're designed to have, to, they're designed to help us see and recognize who we are and how all of those things factor into our proper responses to God. It's interesting. Our proper responses to God and our responses to others, they form us, they teach us. The Psalms, those songs, though poetic, for sure. Wisdom literature pointing us to God. John Calvin said this, they are an anatomy of all parts, all the parts of the soul. So let's turn to Psalm 1 as we begin uh, here in our series on Psalms. Follow along as I read. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither and all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous for the Lord knows the way of the righteous but the way of the wicked will perish. There's a lot to be said in this psalm. I want to take this route because there were two things that were kind of our goal today. In other words, our aim today, I hope that in hearing about the psalms, that it drives you to the psalms for the rest of your lives. But we will particularly in this season give attention to it in these seven weeks the second aim that I have, I want us to see in the course of this psalm what it is that God has to say to us at the very opening of the psalms. I want to look at it and at least look at these three things. Number one, there, you see in this psalm that there are comparisons and, and, and contrasting statements. So we're going to look at that in terms that there is a contrasting road or a path uh, that, that all men walk on. 
All men and women walk on one or the other of the paths that are contrasted. Then he gives us, coming out of that, we look that he compares uh, an image that helps us get a picture in our mind uh, of, this, of this road and this path and what it flows out of that, what comes out of that. And then uh, in the last part, there is uh, a contrasting of the promises of God. And I want us to look at this. And they fall in line uh, with, with one another. Blessed is the man. So first, we are looking at a blessed man. What does that word blessed mean? Uh, It means a lot of things through the course of Scripture, but most often it speaks of happiness, fulfillment. That's what that means. So happy is the man. Fulfilled is the man. Complete is the man or woman. Kind of get that in your mind. In other words, there is a fulfillment, there is a completion, there is a happiness, there is a fullness, there is a joy in the man or woman. And then look at how it's stated. It's stated with three negative statements and one positive statement. Let's look at the three negative statements. Notice it says, who walks not. So it's clear that the psalmist is painting a picture of a walk through life on a particular road or on a particular path. Who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. And then I want you to notice that it turns from walking to standing. So when we're walking, we're walking along. And then we stand, it means that we have stopped and we have paused. And then we sit down means that we've camped out in that area. So that's the picture that the psalmist is painting here. A road or a path. Something about this path or this road that draws us to cause us to stay. And notice what he says. He said, who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Nor stands in the way of sinners. Nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So the negative picture that is painted here is that there is a path in life that we can choose that will draw us, the world will draw us, this path will draw us to cause us to want to go down it. In other words, there's something that is appealing about going down that path. Uh, Melissa was telling me she was driving back last night in in a severe storm and That was not a road she wanted to be on. She didn't want that road. She didn't want those circumstances and the hardship in in coming in that. Uh, When I was coming back in Wednesday night, storm hit in Holly Ridge and it started up north of us. And if you remember Wednesday night, uh, probably most of us experienced severe thunderstorm and lightning. And after being up for about 36 hours at that time, I was not wanting to drive from Holly Ridge back uh, to the Bayshore area in that storm, but I did, uh, but it was not a road that I wanted to be on. But there was nothing about it that was appealing. I wanted to get off of it. But here we see that the blessed man is the man who recognizes that he does not want to be on this road and on this path. But here's what's happened. We are comparing and contrasting between two types of individuals. There is the man who wants to be on that road, and not only does that man want to be on that road receiving the counsel of the wicked or listening to the world or being directed in that way, but notice what happens is, is that same man who does go down that path and stays on that path eventually finds himself pausing and stopping because he likes it, and not only does he stop, pause and stop and likes it, but then notice what he does. He just sits down. In other words, he camps out in that place. And the psalmist is trying to help us to understand in the course of this and through the rest of the psalms, through the rest of the psalms, that we are dealing with two kinds of people. And we today, no matter how young or old we are, we are all finding ourselves at this point Uh, in one or the other of these places. The man who loves this way of life and camps out and sits and stays with sinners and follows that path, but then notice the contrast in verse 2. And it is done now in a positive sense. The contrast 
The man who is happy and joyful and fulfilled and complete and blessed is the one who delights in the law of the Lord and who meditates on it day and night. Well, what does he mean when he's talking about the law of the Lord? Well, when Scripture speaks of the law of the Lord, uh, it can be speaking of three different things. All three of them really are bound together and tied together. But the law of the Lord can mean just the, the first five books of the Bible. Well, we point back to throughout the course of Scripture, the first five books of the Bible, the law of the Lord, the Pentateuch, the, the books of Moses. Can mean the law of the Lord tied to Moses and the giving of the law of God and what we know, know of as the Mosaic Covenant. In other words, the covenant that God established in the course of his law, in the course of that law, which was tied back to the covenant that God made with Abraham. And then we sometimes hear through the course of Scripture that the law of God is just whatever God commands, that there are commands that flow through the course of Scripture. All of them ultimately are tied back to the first five books of the Bible, but it's whatever it is that God commands. We've gotten to the New Testament, and we have looked, even in the course of Peter, that there are imperatives that are given that are commands of God. And as we spend our time in the New Testament, we hear that God gives us commands even in the New Testament. But they all ultimately are tied back to Him. Ultimately, whatever it is that God commands becomes the law. Instruction. For what? I was thinking about it this week as I was working through this text. Uh, God did not create us and leave us alone not knowing how to navigate through life. Because that's what the psalmist does throughout the course of the psalm. Whoever it is that is giving the psalm, whoever the psalmist is, they're giving us instruction. The Holy Spirit is giving us instruction on how to relate to God and how to relate to other people. In other words, telling us how to live. Just think about the grace of God in that and giving us instruction on how to live. And not just how to live in commands and what to do and the way to act, but how to feel, how to think, how to process, how to look at Him, and then how to look at the rest of life in relation to Him and who He is. Well, that's what the psalmist is doing here. And how do we do that? We do it by delighting in the law of the Lord. Read this morning in our, in our confession coming out of Luke chapter 8 that even with Jesus' teaching, he's talking about the significance of his word and how it lands and rests upon our hearts. And what do we do with it? Well, we either ignore it, we'll take it for a little while and then do away with it, or we hold on to it and we cling to it, understanding that this is God's Word. The very one who created us has given us instruction on how to live. He's pointed us to what is life-giving. I'm reminded that whenever Jesus was teaching his disciples and they reached this critical time and there were those who had been following him that were, that were leaving, and uh, Jesus looked at his disciples and he said, are, are y'all going to leave too? You remember what Peter said? He said, where else are we going to go? There's no one else who has the words of life. In other words, where else can we go? They were not faithful and obedient at every point, but they understood in the hearing of his word and his teaching and authority. And, and Brian mentioned this this past Thursday night in our Connect group. Uh, but what is it that gives us the authority? Well, we don't, we don't have authority apart from God. What is authoritative is his word. So when we read his word, when we share his word, when we communicate his word, when we explain his word, we are doing so and there is an authority that is accompanied to that by virtue of the fact that it is God's word. It is authoritative. 
It's authoritative for our life. It's instruction. And that's what it is. It's the psalmist is comparing the man who does not see God as authoritative and he is comparing the man who does see God and his word as authoritative. And not only does he see it as authoritative, but notice what he says. He delights in it. In other words, he loves it. I I think that bodes a question for us today. Do you love God's Word? Do you really love His Word? Well, we recognize that the psalmist is pointing to the man that not only loves His Word, but he meditates on it day and night. In other words, it, it consumes him. Consumes him. In other words, there is a desire to hear from God about life and looking for His instruction in all ways and in everything. So that's the contrasting of the paths. But then notice what happens in verse 3. Now we get a picture of, of, of that and what that looks like. That man who is blessed by God, who delights in the law of the Lord, and picture this now, okay, gives us a perfect picture in, in poetic prose. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither and in all that he does he prospers. Now this this delighting in the law of the Lord clearly is a work that takes place that yields fruit. That's the point. Is that delighting in the law of God, feasting on the word of God, yields fruit. So I kind of point this back to us occasionally just to remind us that if you have any wonder why when we begin here in our corporate worship time that we begin with reading God's Word and we close with hearing God's Word and through the course of our service we are constantly reading God's Word. You know why? Because that is the only means by which fruit will be born in your life. That that word takes root. Not what I say, not what any of us may say, not, not even in the story that I just shared just a moment ago uh, about the rowing team. That was just to kind of help you begin to think that there's hardship and difficulty and struggle. But it is the Word of God that brings about the fruit bearing in our lives. And that's what the psalmist said. He's like a tree. He's like a tree planted by streams of water. How many of you have ever planted a tree in your yard? Real excited about getting the tree, plant it, put water on it for a few days, and then leave it and not water it again. Probably all of us have done that in some way or another to a plant. Janice has the, the, the great capability of buying plants that they will just, she will just about starve it to death for water and then she'll come and realize that plant's dying and then she'll just about drown it and it'll come back to life. And I just remind her, I said, you know you're really stunning the growth of the plant just like you would be a child if you fed them just once in a while. Yeah, they just about starved to death. They never, they, they, but we, we are able to do that. And there's some plants that can bear that out. But trees are not that way. Trees are not that way. This tree is planted by a stream of water. And the stream of water that he is pointing to is he is like a tree that is planted by a stream of water. In other words, he is grounded and his roots are rest in the word of God. He's feasting on it day and night. He's meditating on it day and night, meaning that it is constantly receiving all the nutrients that it needs to do what? To yield its fruit in its season. What kind of fruit is that? Well, it's bearing the fruits of righteousness. There's this sanctifying work that is taking place in this man's life. He's not complete. He's not full. Not complete in the sense of of being fully complete, fully mature yet. But he is constantly growing and being fed there. And he is grounded and rooted where he is constantly receiving all that he needs or all that she needs in the course of knowing how to navigate through life. That's how important God's Word is to us. That's how important it is. 
And in all that he does, he prospers. And the point of this text is not that psalmist is not pointing us to prosperity in some way. It's not as if I've heard this I've heard this passage of Scripture taught and taken completely out of context. In other words, if I want a lot of money, I'm going to read the Bible. And, and then I'll prosper. You know, that's, the, that's the secret to prosperity. Read God's Word. But that is not what the psalmist is trying to point to. In all that he does, he prospers. What does that mean? It doesn't mean he doesn't have hardship. It doesn't mean that he doesn't fail. It has absolutely nothing to do with any financial gain. It has everything to do with being built up and growing in sanctification. In other words, being conformed into the image of Christ. And we will not be conformed to the image of Christ apart from the Word of God. Okay? Yeah, prayer is important, but prayer apart from the Word of God will not, will not grow you in sanctification. In other words, prayer apart from God's Word only becomes a mean most of the time for you to just spill your guts and your heart before God, but it does nothing to build you up because it is God's word by his design, his instruction, that ultimately is what takes shape and form in the course of our lives. So I would just say if you neglect God's word, would be like you neglecting eating. And if you neglect God's word, for a long enough time, just like if you would neglect eating, then you will perish. And, and I think it's interesting, again, to notice that the blessed man is the one who's not just doing it out of obligation, but notice back up in verse 2, but he delights in it. He loves it. That's what I'm longing for me in my life and what I long for you in uh, yours. Notice the other contrast there. Notice he begins with the, in verses 1, begins with the, the negative side of things. In other words, here's what the man who doesn't delight in the law of the Lord does. Then he moves to the righteous man, the one who is blessed. Here's what he does do. He delights in the law of the Lord. And then he begins this second part by continuing with that. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, and now he moves to the wicked. And notice what he says in verse 4. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Uh, I'm reminded, uh, just have this picture in my mind because I saw it. Uh, we were coming out of a little village there in North Africa, in northern Ghana. And, uh, uh, you know, we hear about winnowing and, and all, but uh, they had been out and they had been breaking the grain and they had brought it back uh, and they had beaten the grain out. And I watched them lay two ladies, one on each side of a, of a kind of a blanket or a sheet, and they were shaking the grain and the wind was blowing that day and blowing the chaff away. You know why the chaff was able to be blown away? Because there was nothing to it. It had no weight. It had no real substance. It was no good. The wind could blow away what was not weighty and was not substantial. Notice what he says here. The wicked are not so. They are like chaff that the wind drives away. In other words, there's no weight there. There's no substance in the wicked. He's rejected the instruction of God, turned away from the Word of God, has no desire for the Word of God or God's instruction, so there is no weight. There is nothing of substance. It is easily driven away by the wind. It's one of the things that we were, when we started this morning, we were talking about our feelings and our emotions and, and those things taking place. And, and yes, feelings and emotions are real and they're good. And there's some that are, that are not good. What grounds that? What brings weight to that? What makes those right? Ultimately, when we are filtering it back through the instruction of God, that is the point, is that the righteous man the one who is 
feasting on the Word of God, has substance in his or her life, has grounding, fundamental grounding, can figure out how to navigate through life in the midst of all the hardship and struggles. But the one who doesn't, they are wicked. So we have the comparison between the righteous and the wicked, and then we have this picture. We have this tree planted by streams of water that is constantly being fed and it is flourishing and it is bearing fruit. And then we have this other picture over here and and, and they are just being, I mean, they're just polarized in contrast. Then we have this other picture over here of, of, of a person who has no weight, no substance, that is driven away by the wind, whose life is nothing, it has no grounding. And that's where... That is where we find ourselves. So I'd ask you today, are are you a tree firmly planted by the water? Your soul's being fed by God and His Word. You're longing for it. If not, then the contrasting picture for you in your life would be that you are chaff. There's no weight. There's no substance. You can't eat it. Does no good. There's no fruit being born. In fact, there's no fruit there. And it'll be driven away by the wind. I want you to look at the verses 5 and 6. Because I had mentioned that we want to look at two promises. You know, God's Word is not apart from His promises. Notice what He says. Therefore, okay, there's a, a therefore. In other words, based upon what we've already heard, there is some end here. It means something. It means something. Therefore, and notice now we're back to the wicked. Okay? So look, go back up to verse 1. We start out wicked, righteous. Verse 3, righteous, wicked. Verse 5, wicked, and then we're going to move to righteous. Therefore, the wicked, because they are like chaff in the wind, drives it away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. What does that ultimately mean? Well, it it means that, and, and I want to point this directly to Christ, okay? This means that because Christ is the judge, that the man or woman who has rejected Christ is wicked, The man or woman who does not accept Christ and his atoning work. The man who does not believe and trust. In other words, the man or woman who does not entrust himself or herself and life to the atoning work of Christ. This person will not stand in the judgment. In other words... This person will stand before God but will not make it beyond that because they will be in judgment driven away to eternal punishment. That is the point that the psalmist is making. The words are not there. The picture is driven away by the wind, just cast away. That's what the psalmist is trying to help us see. And will not find himself or herself in the congregation of the righteous or in the assembly of the righteous. That's a promise of God. It is a promise, a result of, a result of our decisions regarding God and his instruction and his word regarding what he has done for us in Christ That is the reason this morning that not only did we look at Luke 8, but we looked at John chapter 1. Why? Because Christ is the Word, supreme authority, the instruction from all eternity. And for as many as believed in His name, to them He gives the right to be called the children of God. To be called a children of God. So if you're here today and you've trusted Christ, then you are a child of God. And if you're not, then you are a creation of God, but you are not a son or a daughter. And 
you will not receive the inheritance of eternal life, but rather you will not stand in the judgment and you will not be in the assembly of the righteous. That's the point. That's the point. That's the promise. Don't miss that. It's incredibly important. But now here's the other promise. They're contrasting promises. Contrasting results. Verse 6. For the Lord knows, intimately knows the way of the righteous. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. Why? Well, because he is the one who has imputed his righteousness in Christ on the one who trusts in him. Now I want you to understand that all of this is not contrived in the heart of the man and there does not the good man and the bad man. Uh, there are all bad men. God works savingly, savingly toward those and giving them faith to trust in him and puts in their hearts a longing for his word. I love God's word. But I only love God's word because God has made it sweet to me. If you're here today and you love God's word and you long for him, it's because that he has made that true in your life. But I want you to know that he make it, make it true in, 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 in sinners' lives. There's nothing good about you in regards to that. Nothing good about me. But God is at work there and he knows the way of the righteous. And what he is saying here and contrasting here is he knows the way of the righteous and the way of the righteous will ultimately mean that they will be in the assembly and in the congregation of the righteous. That's the point. Notice he concludes in verse 5, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous. Where are they? They are in that assembly. Why? Because they love God's word. They love him. They delight in him. Why? Because he has granted that to them. And then he concludes the psalm with this, just so we don't miss it. And notice he doesn't repeat, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous. What he does repeat is this, but the way of the wicked will perish. Well, what do you suppose he says, right there in those last three verses, beginning of verse 4, why do you suppose he says three times, the wicked are not so, they're like chaff that the wind drives away. The wicked will not be in the congregation of the righteous and they won't stand in the judgment, meaning that they won't make it through the judgment. They, they will be judged and not left standing, but will be cast away and will perish. Why do you suppose there's that thrust there. Well, I, I would argue that there is that thrust there so that we would listen and hear and give attention to the seriousness of this matter of the blessed man. The seriousness of the matter of being the one who is blessed. Seriousness of matter of listening to God's word. Now, what does that mean for us here today? Yeah. I think at least this one thing and then beyond would be to give attention to looking at this psalm not as a prescription but looking at it descriptively and asking ourselves does this psalm describe me? I'm not asking you to look at me now. Me. I'm asking you to look at you. But does this psalm describe me more so in one way or the other? Because we have been given two clear pictures. Two clear promises. Two very clear descriptive statements regarding our lives. Now, why is this important as it's coming out of 1 Peter? Because we are trying to learn what does it mean to do good and how can we do good in the midst of the season that we live in in persecution and hardship. 
And we do good when we look to God's Word and His instruction for help in life because that's what God intends. Does that make sense? I hope so. I hope it makes sense to you today. I hope it makes sense to me today. And I hope it will continue to make sense for us uh, as we continue to look toward life before God uh, and during these times that we live in. Will you pray with me? Father, we're grateful today for Christ. Grateful, Father, that He kept Your Word, obeyed Your Word, pointed us to love You and obey You, to love Him and obey Him. That He showed us what it was like to love You and to love Your Word and to keep it. And that in our failures, He did it for us. And as we trust in Him, You lavish us with the great gift of that righteousness being placed upon us that we may come and stand in the judgment and not be driven away by the wind but actually, Father, are able to be in your presence where we will be fulfilled and complete in your time because of the work of Christ. Father, would you work within us even today that would cause us to be honest about looking at our lives, our feelings, our emotions, and what we think about you and what we think about Christ, but more importantly, in the course of that, God, through that, that you would speak to our hearts and reveal to us who are believers, re reveal to us and bring about a deep conviction regarding your word and its goodness. And for those who have not trusted you, Father, would you awaken their hearts today to your wonder and your awe and your beauty and bring about within them a developing love for your word and your work. that we may be blessed, full of joy, full of hope, full of happiness because of our relationship with you. In Christ's name, amen.